Hey Jay, what's hope like in other timelines? That is one hell of an existential question, Miles. No, not the abstract concept of Hope. Hope Summers, the mutant messiah. I mean, assuming she is the mutant messiah in other timelines? As a rule, she tends to be. Actually, it's a little weird. She may have spent her childhood jumping between timelines, but her personal one doesn't usually split till after that. So, where does she end up? Well, there's the one where she became Phoenix on the moon. Huh, how'd that go? Pretty badly. And there's the one where she's shot Cyclops in the face. Seriously? Is that the one where she's evil? Or he's evil? Or- No, uh, that's- that's 616. Huh. Look, she's a very violent messiah type. I mean, they're lucky it's not the universe where she absorbed every mutant psyche on the planet. Are- are there any alternate universes where she's a hero? Well, 616 is arguable, but less ambiguously, there is always Earth, uh, 13021. Does she finally get a proper code name? I mean, Hope is a little on the nose, and also her regular person name. She does. It's kind of a legacy name, though, not an original one. Aw, oh, man. Is she Cable? No. She's Strife. What?! I'm Jay Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 252 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to X-Factor, and an arc where kind of a lot of things happen. Yeah, yeah, god, a whole lot happens here. And, and it happens in, in very, very deus ex machina ways. Well, I guess that's kind of appropriate, the whole Deus thing, because one of the big themes of this arc is going to be religion. That it is. That and then some. What, what would you say the other major themes are here? Um, having high heels where the high heel part is made of snakes, and um, the trolley problem, which you pointed out in your notes, we'll get to that, and uh, a, a great deal of excellent costume design, although I guess that kind of overlaps with the whole high heels being snakes. Hmm. I, I think there's there's probably some stages of grief to be had here. Probably that, too. Yeah. Well, we'll get to grief and snakes and trolleys and all of that momentarily, but for now, perhaps we should talk about backstory. I gotta say before we do, it's weird recording this before Dark Phoenix comes out and knowing that by the time it comes out, we'll already have been talking about Dark Phoenix, but we can't talk about Dark Phoenix as we record it. Yeah, because I, I haven't seen it, and like, normally I don't worry as much about X-Men spoilers because, you know, it's it's kind of a gig, but for this I really want to have my own genuine reaction to this movie that makes me very nervous, and so I feel like going in and experiencing all of the highs and lows as they come is going to be the way to go, but, but yeah, that means we can't talk about it right now, Jay. I'm excited to do so in like a few days, though. Yeah, by the time this comes out, we'll also presumably have recorded a, a brief extra of us talking about it, and I will definitely have reviewed it on Polygon, and we'll we'll have linked to that from the site already. But I guess we can throw it in the, as mentioned, from this page, too. But for now, this arc of X-Factor has, I think, basically nothing to do with the Dark Phoenix saga. I mean, it. I was gonna say it's got a character who, or two who are involved, but no, it, it actually doesn't at all. Yeah, no overlap at all, I believe. Uh, so, yeah, about that backstory? Right. X-Factor is America's government-sponsored team of mutant heroes who are still recovering after saving survivors from a terrorist attack on the Kennedy Center. Now, Quicksilver had wandered off before then during an X-Men and Avengers crossover, so what are the rest of the team up to? Well, let's see. Uh, Havoc, their plasma-blasting leader, and Strong Guy, who's what he says on the tin, are pretty much fine. So is the team's new government liaison, Forge. Wolfsbane, a young mutant werewolf who was genetically bonded to Havoc by some jerks a while ago, has become increasingly and understandably distraught about her involuntary and increasingly frantic obsession with him. It looked like that was resolved to some extent uh, in Genosha, but it's come back with a vengeance since. Giving Wolfsbane a run for her money as far as life being terrible is Multiple Man. 
After being exposed to the mutant-targeting AIDS allegory that is the legacy virus while trying to help one of its victims a little while ago, he's been splitting off into increasingly varied duplicates of himself, while Madrox's prime has been sickening and deteriorating. Also, he killed one of Magneto's acolytes in self-defense during Fatal Attractions, and he's having some issues with that. Although interestingly, he's not having any issues about having killed one of the Chalker brothers in that one X-Factor annual in almost the same way. No one cares about the Chalker brothers. Yeah, that's sort of their deal. And Polaris was attacked recently, seemingly by the government. First by gun-for-arm-for-hire mutant Random, who had been hired by the government, and then by a bunch of high-tech hitmen. She was saved from the latter fight by a woman named Haven, a teleporter with a thing for candles and a penchant for speaking in mysterious pink-bordered word balloons. So what's her deal? Well, let's find out right now, starting in X-Factor number 97, The New Humanity. This is written by J.M. DeMattis, penciled by Jen Dursima, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Mike Thomas. Jen Dursima is so good. She's so solid. I'm so glad you like her work. Not everyone does. But for me, she made a follower for life with Star Wars Legacy, and now every time I see her, I just super appreciate her storytelling ability. There's some stuff of hers that I have mixed feelings about, and I don't know if it's if it's her or if it's Milgram's inks that are bugging me, but, but, she draws super ripped Polaris with Larry Stroman-style hair, so I'm sold. Fair enough. So, Haven, this armored, sort of religious-seeming woman that just rescued Polaris, what's her deal? Well, she's really, really into candles, and she can do something involving shifting between planes of reality— and she's credible and patient enough to convince a very skeptical Lorna that Haven, in fact, saved her and isn't attached to the goons who attacked her, which is true. After talking at length about the world being at a crossroads and a new humanity being born, Haven disappears again, leaving Lorna um, on, the, on the street corner in Washington where she was initially attacked, alone save for a book called um, Dianetics. Wait, no, I mean, Our Bodies Ourselves. Uh, my immortal. It's actually called Man, Mutant, and the New Humanity, and we've seen a couple of characters reading it in the background in the previous issue. Haven is really cool looking. Can we talk about her design a little bit? Oh, yes, please. She's wearing this full-body suit of armor, but it's not armor that really marks her as a warrior. It looks almost ceremonial and very religious. It's these plates of metal, sort of, there's like a snaky vibe to it, uh, both with her hood and also because... As I mentioned before, and I will mention as many times as I can, she's got snakes wrapped around her legs, and the heels of her high heels are their tails, and either those are metal snakes or, more likely and much better, very, very strong living snakes. I don't see why they can't be both. That's fair. That's fair. And I also appreciate that there's a lot of flowing cloth that's sort of integrated with her armor. It really adds to that religious leader feel that she's got going on. Her look is very, very, very um, evocative of, of specifically Egyptian um, depictions of divinity. Which is interesting because she herself takes much of her cosmology from Hinduism. We'll later find out in a different arc that her parents raised her under all religions, that one parent was Hindu and one was Zoroastrian, just like Freddie Mercury's parents. Uh, but yeah, most of the concepts she talks about are vaguely Hindu in origin, although heavily modified in some cases. You can't drop that aside and just walk off, Miles. Once you've invoked Freddie Mercury, Freddie Mercury is there for the rest of the episode. I mean, I would say we should stop and talk about him, but Jay, the show must go on. Now all I can think of is that amazing, amazing Marvel, um, Marvel submission of, of Wolverine finding him in the woods. That was incredible. Okay, Jay, when you do the as mentioned for this episode, you have got to put that in for the sake of our listeners and all humanity. I will. I think we've linked to it before, but it really never stops being delightful. And see, this leaves me imagining an alternate timeline where Haven used her powers and preached her philosophy in a very, very different and possibly more glam way. I mean, she's pretty sparkly, but she could be sparklier. It's true. So you mentioned the flowing fabric, and I gotta say, the thing to me that most clearly demonstrates that she is no ordinary individual is how much flowing fabric there is among candles and the fact that at no point does she catch fire. 
Oh man, yeah, I remember our uh, our old housemate's cat Trinket, and she was very very graceful and would walk amid you know chess pieces and stuff, but occasionally forgot where her tail was and would pass it through a candle and be very upset. Well, she was she was incredibly incredibly deft, but she was completely unaware that she had a tail. That was that was the issue. It wasn't that she was sometimes clumsy. It was that she just failed to recognize her tail as part of her body ever. She would chase it and catch it and bite it and then get upset because it had hurt her. And then bite it more. Yeah. Oh, Trinket. You're not what this episode is about, but uh, I'm glad we could revisit those memories. Shout out to the scariest cat we have ever lived with. But also a pretty great one. Oh, yeah. No, she was super good. She used to steal nail polish and hide it under the couch. Everyone has to have a hobby. But speaking of things that are pretty good, so... We talked about Haven sort of in jest at the end of the last X-Factor episode about, you know, how her smoke probably smelled like patchouli and she must have been a Portlander and, and stuff. And one of our listeners, 90s RF, is actually really fascinated by Haven and when these comics came out, looked into her and pointed out that actually there's a lot going on here. I think a lot more than most people give Haven credit for. For starts, she is one of the only Indian and one of the only Hindu characters in comics. And back in the early 90s, that was even more the case. And that's worth something. And, you know, the way that her religiousness and her general trappings are conveyed, they are very 90s. It's very much an era where New Age was a concept that people would talk about without, you know, scare quotes. But at the same time, there's a lot of good stuff there. And so I do want to make sure that as we go through this arc and talk about Haven, that we sort of acknowledge the potential that's there and sort of what J.M. DeMattis was maybe, as far as we can figure out, trying to do. Something that's also to be said for Haven and something that I really appreciate about her. Um, you mentioned the 90s, and this is an era when cultural appropriation was aggressively rampant, I say, as if it's not now and hadn't been before. But the fact that Haven is drawing from the religious traditions and cosmology that she grew up in, that she's got ex direct experience in, is kind of a massive relief here. I feel like there are so many ways this could have been taken that would have been so much worse. And while it is frustrating to see this as a very, very rare representation and that playing into an amped up to 11 cultural stereotype. She's an interesting character and she's an interesting study in a very, very specific type of relationship with religion that you get to see played out very rarely in non-Christian ways in American comics. Yeah, very much so. And from what I understand, I don't know much about J.M. DeMattis, um, but a couple of our listeners on the uh, comments thread that uh, 90s RF was, was speaking in, that's uh, the comments thread for episode 241, if people want to check it out, there's some good stuff there. Um, it was pointed out that DeMattis um, either was or possibly still is a follower of the Indian spiritual leader Meher Baba. So, like, he was doing his best to get some ideas out there, or at least a version of ideas out there that were actually pretty special to him. So we're going to get into Haven's specific ideals later. Um, she's got this book, Man, Mutant, and the New Humanity, that she's she's sent to, to Polaris. And it turns out Polaris isn't the only person who's got a copy. Because Polaris calls Professor X secretly in the middle of the night for advice. And it turns out he's also received a copy of the book. And with it, an invitation to hear Haven speak in Maryland at a place called the Brahma House. Jay! Jay, Polaris called someone when she had a problem! Mutants are learning how to use phones. I'm so excited. I'm so proud of them. X-Factor, at least this iteration of X-Factor, has always been reasonably good at that. True, true. I guess it's not as big of a deal as when Kitty Pride finally actually checked in back home. Right? That was amazing. Yeah. So... Xavier has a book. Lorna has a book. Lorna's going to go check this woman out on Xavier's behalf. Who else has a book is Valerie Cooper, the former government liaison to X-Factor. This book comes to Valerie at a moment of uncertainty because Val is really, really sad that X-Factor doesn't trust her anymore after she didn't tell them about the new generation of Sentinels. What, what the fuck, Val? You're, you're basically blonde Henry Peter Gyrick. How, how are they supposed to trust you? This is, this is like the most earned mistrust. 
Pretty much, yeah. Although, you know, Havoc did express regret about the fact that Val just took off, so I feel like if they just sat down and talked, maybe there would be not so much trust as at least some sort of rapport. She really, really screwed them. Yeah, yeah, she really did. Who else has the book? Well, Jamie's got a book, or at least one of Jamie's duplicates has a book, and has gotten really, really obsessively into Haven. The rest of the dupes think it's a cult. And Polaris actually ends up tracking down Jamie Prime, the prime duplicate of, of Multiple Man. She's been worried about him lately, and nobody else has really been paying attention. That's something that we come back to again and again in this era of X-Factor, which is that Lorna is the observant one, the intelligent one, the one with emotional maturity, also the team's powerhouse. Basically, Lorna's the best. Lorna is basically leading the team at this point. I have no idea why Havoc is even ostensibly still in charge, aside from sexism. I mean, he's got pretty good hair, but then again, so does Polaris. I mean, Havoc's hair is swoopy, but dude, Polaris has way, way fancier hair. Right? And Lorna figures out what's going on with Madrox at long last. She realizes, holy crap, I think Jamie has the legacy virus. And she tries to convince him to go to Westchester, um, that, that Xavier and Mara McTaggart can help him, and Jamie shuts her down with one of the most effective comebacks that he could possibly pull out to that. The way they helped Ilyana. Ouch. Well, everybody heads to Brahma House, which is where Haven is having her big speaking engagement. Val's there alone, but she pretty quickly runs into Jamie, Guido, and Rain, who were all sent by Alex. Lorna herself is lurking in back. Nobody else realizes that she's there. And Haven gives a long, blurry speech. And the thing with Haven, the thing with Haven's rhetoric in general is it tends to be kind of walls of text with these, these pink borders. And Dematis does a very, very good job of having her express very relatable sentiments without quite saying anything at all. Exactly. She's offering very few specifics here. Who I also want to give credit to, though, is Jan Dersima. Like, this scene, I mean, like you mentioned, Jay, it's basically a wall of text, and for a lot of artists, that could look super boring, but Dersima just focuses on each of the people in the audience in turn, and even though they don't have many lines, just seeing their faces, like Lorna being grumpy, Val being suspicious, Guido grinning stupidly because he's Guido and I love him, Rain in this shadowed wolfen form under this super, like, almost Sunday church best pink outfit, the three Jamies yawning and in awe and sullen. Like, if somebody were to jump onto X Factor with this issue, well, okay, they'd be very confused, but at least they would get a feel for who these characters were just by how they're reacting to this lady saying basically nothing. In a way, Haven's also doing sort of the speech equivalent of a cold read. Like, she's not really offering anything herself, but we're getting so much from everybody else. This is also one of those places where a strong character design makes a universe of difference. Because Haven is visually compelling enough to carry a full page of text if she needs to. And she's got a dynamic enough outfit that you can do enough and vary enough just with changing angles and changing posture for, for a page to read really dynamically. I feel like Mr. Sinister would appreciate her style. Oh, unquestionably. Well, unfortunately, Havoc and Forge don't appreciate anything that's going on because they X-factor their way through the door, I mean, it makes sense, and tell Haven that she is under arrest. So that's abrupt and weird, and all of those events are fairly, fairly linear. Um, meanwhile, in Random's location, as distinct from a random location... Remember Random? He's the Lobo-looking, very, very 90s bounty hunter who has gray skin and can turn his arm into a gun and will do anything for a check. Surprisingly, he's become a bigger and bigger deal in X-Factor in a way that I have to wonder if Peter David ever really intended when Random was created. Yep, he's around. He has a home now and everything. He lives with a nice lady named Vera who calls him Marshall. It's complicated. So this part's interesting, because later on, as we've mentioned, it'll be revealed that Random's actually a small child, using his shape-shifting abilities to live as an adult. There's a sort of Shazam thing going on there, kind of not really. 
Here, it seems to be implied that Random and Vera are romantic partners. Seriously? I didn't get that from them at all. I don't know, just the way he keeps calling her sweetheart and stuff like that, the way he talks to her on the phone. Oh, see, to me, that just sort of reads as, as honestly kind of a kid trying to talk to an adult woman the way he he thinks that he's supposed to, or someone flirting with an, a person who's totally safe to flirt with because that's never going to happen. That could be, and I will say that is pretty much how it reads. I had assumed that was unintentional because the random as a kid retcon hadn't happened yet, but it does work really, really well. You don't have to sort of blur your eyes to make that retcon work, even reading this right here. There's also the fact that random has tons of toys and collectibles and stuff filling his house. Like, yeah, this is basically what a not very well-adjusted child would do if he got to be a grown-up. I really love the detail that he's super into ordering stuff from catalogs, because this isn't going to make sense to kids who've grown up with the internet, but, like, if you were our age, that's a big adult power threshold. Oh god, yeah, like, getting to have something come in the mail because you decided it should come in the mail? Like, that is absolute power. That is ruling your life with an iron fist. Well, and it means that either you have a credit card or you were able to, like, get someone to write a check. Like, it, it means you have access to adult modes of finance and that you were allowed to do this and, you know, you had access to it and it's it's big. Careful, Jay. We might have to explain what checks are if we don't watch ourselves. I mean, they're all over this issue. True, true. That was a big deal in X Factor. So that's all going great, but then a bunch of government goons, presumably from the same people that hired Random to take out Polaris, which he failed to do, attack. There's a big fight, which Random wins, but I gotta say he really should have paid more attention to Sabretooth from Sabretooth Gone Hunting. Random doesn't even have a single Malayan tiger gate defending his home. Literally no one should ever under any circumstances use Sabretooth as a role model, Miles. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good point, actually. Especially not children. Fair. Well, that takes us to X-Factor number 98, Into Oblivion. Written again by J.M. DeMattis, penciled by Greg Lesniak, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Matt Webb. And we open with not one, but two two-page spreads for a total of four pages of spread. I mean, they're divided into sets of two, but still. Basically, Alex is bursting into this room, dramatically continuing this arrest attempt, and X-Factor's fighting among themselves, because Lorna, who makes herself known, totally isn't into this. Haven saves her, they should at least hear the lady out, right? And believer Jamie, the Jamie dupe that is really into Haven's writing, is on the same page. Man, I hate Havoc in this arc. This is, this is the arc where I absolutely get why people dislike Havoc, because he's boring and he's obnoxious, and he just kind of does stuff for no reason. He's he's everything that's frustrating about X-Men animated series Cyclops without any of the interesting parts. Well, there's also a lot of paternalism going on here, as he tells the daring-to-disagree-with-him Lorna, Have you lost your mind? Is she controlling you somehow? Oh, so that's it? If someone disagrees with you, they're being mind-controlled? No one's ever controlling me again, Alex. After all I've been through, after all we've been through together, you should know that! This is the first of several times that he immediately assumes that a woman is being mind-controlled because she disagrees with him. Oh, I like Jam Dematis's writing overall, but I am not a fan of his havoc. No. So, X-Factor bickers among themselves because, well, they're X-Factor, and Haven takes the opportunity to use the D&D 4th Edition wizard spell Sequester to temporarily send them away while she makes her escape. She takes two entire pages to do it, too. Hey, as somebody who played a wizard who specialized in that spell, it's a pretty cool spell. It's worth two pages. Is it, though? Yes. But we see something interesting here, which is that Haven doesn't really raise a hand against them like she herself never attacks them this entire story arc even though she's sort of the big antagonist and that's something that's interesting about her not that she's not a bad guy in some ways but just that she doesn't think that violence is like you know below her she just doesn't want to do it she doesn't like violence yeah she's like a very dignified version of the league of shadows yeah right well after sequester wears off X-Factor heads back to headquarters, and Forge explains what he knows about Haven, what the government's research has unearthed about her. 
So Haven is Radha Dastor. She's a spiritual leader from India. She's done a lot of really good charitable work, but lately she's focused on the idea that mutants are harbingers of the coming golden age of human perfection. Yeah, her idea and the one she outlines in her book is that humans and mutants are one species, and as society gets to where it's supposed to be, people will realize that. They'll evolve into this sort of transcended, unified species. But to get there... 700 years of pain and suffering are going to have to pass before the Mahapralaya occurs. The Mahapralaya is going to be a series of disasters that are going to to kill three-quarters of the population, and this is a requirement for that golden age to occur. So Haven figures, well, she's just going to turn up the clock. And... Yeah, so this this is also a thing, by the way, that a lot of hardcore evangelical um, Christianity is is into, and it's a very it's a strain of Armageddon theology that is absolutely terrifying, and even more so when you add superpowers to it, political or mutant. Basically, that. So neither of us really knows much at all about Hinduism, but a bit of cursory Googling did at least show that the Mahapralaya is indeed a Hindu concept. I suspect it's not quite like this, though. Yeah, um, there, there's a character who's going to point out a little later that a lot of religions have this rough narrative with, and, and interpreted varying degrees of literally in them, which is true to some extent. Now, there is a great page, as we learn from Forge, about the Mahapralaya, Haven's deal, how she's planning to, you know, kill, kill, kill lots of people to get to this beautiful golden age. The page just has her looking fucking majestic and fearsome, with this legion of armored warriors behind her, and then all around are these red-tinged photos, like actual photographs of cities being destroyed by various disasters. That's something we've seen X-Factor do before, is use photographs usually of government buildings, but this right here, not only does it make Haven intimidating to us, but when juxtaposed with Forge's text, it makes it very clear just how scared Forge and the government are of what they think Haven will do. See, it felt kind of goofy and Ralph Bakshi to me. Okay, there were some shades of Ralph Bakshi's wizards, you're not wrong, but I personally, in this context, think it works. Okay, I I have a lot of trouble with dropping photos into comics art. Um, For me, it creates kind of an uncanny valley space. It just, yeah, it does not work well for me under the majority of circumstances, and this is among those. Well, listeners, you be the judge. Yeah, obviously mileage varies. Lorna refuses to believe this. She's like, hey, this lady saved me, and specifically saved me, from what I can tell, from the same government that's trying to talk shit about her. Havoc, to his credit, actually listens for a change in this arc. Yeah, he tells Lorna that if the data doesn't convince her and she she thinks they should walk away, they will walk away. Which is good, because again, she should really be leading X-Factor by now. I will also point out that Lorna's mistrust of the government is entirely justified. Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen exactly what happened. It doesn't seem to be, you know, the president signing a piece of paper that says kill Lorna Dane. From what Forge can tell, this seems to be some shadowy faction within the government or related to the government. But still, I get where you're coming from, Lorna. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, Jamie is reenacting the same debate among himself between his his pro-Haven and anti-Haven dupes. I've been so sick, so scared, so confused, but all I get from you idiots is a constant chatter, a stream of ideas and opinions and philosophies, all of it contrary and utterly useless. He makes dupe after dupe in frustration and then reabsorbs them, but he can't reabsorb the first two he made, and one points out that maybe right now he's scared to be alone. I think the way the legacy virus affects Jamie is fascinating and very well done. We know that it makes people's powers flare out of control in various ways. Usually that's a great big explosion at the end of their life, but for a character like Jamie Madrox, for a character whose powers are so tied up in the way he interacts with his identity— this makes sense. And what's really interesting here is that years down the road, the idea of Jamie having different dupes with drastically varying personalities, 
that's going to be standard. We're seeing the first seeds of that here. Well, I guess technically the first seeds were in Fallen Angels, but they're a lot more prominent here. Well, and even more interestingly, the Jamie who's going to die of legacy, the legacy virus, uh, spoiler, at the end of this arc, is much later going to be retconned to have been not Jamie Prime, but a dupe. Yeah. Honestly, I don't really like the idea of Jamie Prime. I think he's a more interesting character if you just take that away and just have all of the dupes be equally him. I agree wholeheartedly. But dramatically, the issue ends with Haven speaking to a new petitioner who wants to join Haven's organization. Haven says that this person has to understand that they must do great harm to the world for a greater later good. And the petitioner has to undergo their own personal pralaya, a temporary annihilation of self. Which apparently is kind of literal, because Haven reaches out, the person disappears in a swirl of black energy, and then comes back. Now... We see this person only in silhouette at first. So we see that it's a woman. We see that it's a woman with long hair with sort of a curly forelock. And I think we're supposed to believe that it's Polaris until the, the, the individual, the supplicant, reappears and says she's ready to join up. And we discover that, no, it's Val Cooper. Yeah, so that's a thing. And I got to say, when I got to this part, uh, I was very excited to see that Val was going to be more and more a part of the book because... You know, she's not necessarily a great person in a lot of ways, but she's a fascinating character, and I always thought X-Factor really benefited from her. And indeed, she'll be part of this book on and off for a long time. Yeah, but often, like, having her own sort of wacky adventures in the background that intersect with the team, as she is in this arc. Um, now, she's going to turn out to be working undercover, but I gotta say, uh, her just joining up would have been totally in character. I don't know, she's normally so just skeptical and grumpy about everything. Yeah, but she really wants to believe. Like, she wants a higher cause. No, that's a very good point. And that takes us to X-Factor number 99, The Cure. This is written by J.M. DeMattis again, penciled by Jen Darsima, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And back at HQ, Lorna and Forge are still arguing. Um, she points out that the government is hardly an objective source, and again, God, it bugs me that she's not in charge. She is literally the only sensible member of this team. I mean, Alex is literally asleep. Right? Well, he's not going to be able to sleep for too long because Rain, Guido, and Random, who they've met up with at this point, all show up together. They're going to work together because, you know, the government's sort of been jerks to all of them. Yeah, the government's terrible. Although the government embodied by Forge immediately recruits Random temporarily to the team with the promise of $15,000 and a new car to replace the one Lorna wrecked. So that's a thing. Random has gone from a one-off joke to a recurring character to at least temporarily a member of the core cast. Yeah, um, and everyone's down with this except for Havoc. Yeah, Havoc really hates Random. To be fair, Random is being as antagonistic as he possibly can to Havoc. Random's terrible. He's basically like a child who was raised by 90s comics. Mm, yeah, valid. At Haven's headquarters, Haven herself is waxing eloquent about her dreams, her philosophy, her past. I really appreciate that this arc lets us get into her head as much as it does. She also says that as a little girl, she would pray every night for singular God to save not just India, but all the world, and describes India as, quote, a nation of pain and suffering, so that's pretty fucking offensive. Yeah, it's definitely a 90s New Agey take on not even Hinduism, just so much as religion in general. I don't think Haven is supposed to be a representative of this is what Hinduism is like, so much as that general Eastern-tinged New Age mysticism. Back in the X-Jet, or at least the metal pseudo-X-Factor jet that Polaris flies using her magnetism, which is rad, the team is heading off to stop this apparent terrorist haven, or at least to meet up with her and see what she's doing. And Rain and Alex have lost any character development they had in Genosha, and I hate it. You know, I might actually disagree with you there, because while they did reconcile to a degree in Genosha, when Rain went off to get treated and then came back because she couldn't stand to be away from Alex, Alex didn't really prioritize taking care of her. He didn't decide to go 
to treatment with her so that she could basically get her fix while she was being separated from their genetic bond. And I get that he's, that he's had a lot going on, but as guilty as he's been, as much as he's talked about how responsible he feels about Rain, like, seriously, dude, you can take a couple days so I can understand her being furious. Oh, absolutely, but her degree of obsession with him and her tendency to read that as romantic was something that I thought had been really effectively challenged in that arc, and seeing it just turned back in that direction is very, very frustrating. I just figured that the nature of the genetic bond was getting worse and worse, like an ever-increasing addiction. For me, it actually makes sense. There is, however, a really good panel of Guido petting Rain, who is crying while being a wolf, and it's both very sad and very cute. And she is definitely doing the everything-is-bullshit um, puppy face. Oh, man, yeah, because she feels so bad for yelling at Alex, and she just turns into this— I mean, yes, it's a wolf, but you're right, it's, it's almost like a puppy with its tail between its legs. And it just fucking rips my heart out, knowing that she can't control this at all, and yet she feels completely responsible. She feels like it's her fault sometimes. Mm, she is a good, sad doggo teenager. Right? Well, the team makes it to Haven's headquarters, and they're greeted by a bunch of soldiers and also a very muscular man named Monsoon with very nice hair. Who immediately orders them to lay down their arms in Haven's name. To which, to which Guido, being Guido, immediately responds, We're not carrying any arms. Should we lay down our legs? That makes no sense because it implies that they're carrying their legs. Well, exactly, and that's why it's an appropriate Guido joke. Like, that's one thing I will say about J.M. DeMattis. It's kind of tough to follow up Peter David's run, but at least he gets the super stupid Guido wordplay really well. Mm, Peter David would have thrown in a couple, a couple of now extremely dated pop culture references. Yeah, that's probably true. So, Random just proves his worth as the newest member of the team by immediately attacking for no goddamn reason and, reason and turning it into a big fight. That's our X Factor. Haven, however, shows up and says, Dude, let's let's not fight. We don't need to fight. Let's just have a conversation. Let me tell you about my philosophy. Let me tell you about how, yes, the Mahapralaya has to occur and kill a lot of people, but if we trigger it now, think of all the suffering we could prevent. Think of all the lives from those 700 years that would have otherwise happened that we can save. Don't you understand? This is the kind thing to do. This is the trolley problem writ big. It absolutely is. Maybe we should explain that. Yeah, good call. So, the trolley problem is a philosophical conundrum, and Jay, you may know this better than I do, so please correct me if I get this wrong. No, I, I think actually that, that of the two of us, you are, you are the one who has encountered it more directly in an academic context. I took weird philosophy classes. All my classes were on trolleys. It was a strange thing. And you come by trolley knowledge honest. You got it in your family. Uh, that's true. My, my stepfather uh, runs a trolley business. He drives a trolley. He loves it. He loves to ring the bell. It's his favorite part. Anyway, the trolley problem. So the idea is that there's this trolley hurtling toward a whole bunch of people who don't realize it's coming, and it's going to run them over and kill them. And you, the person who realizes this is happening, are near a switch, which can move the tracks. And if you move the tracks, the trolley will instead go onto an alternate track that'll just kill one person. So... If you do nothing, a whole lot of people die, but it's not directly your fault. If you do something, one person dies, and that person's death is, if you look at it a certain way, directly your fault. So what's the right thing to do? Do you do nothing and have a lot of people die, or do you do something and kill somebody who otherwise would not have died? And, you know, certainly opinions vary, but this is kind of that, but with the global catastrophes and spiritual awakenings. And also a lot more hypothetical. That too, yeah. I gotta say, this would be a very different story if it was just literally the trolley problem. This, well, if it were the trolley problem, this would be the train headed at one person and Haven switching it to the other track where it would run over a bunch of people, but some, through some Rube Goldbergian machination, make the one person's life much better. Yeah, uh, that's that's actually true. But then again, in her version, all of the people in the big cluster would have died regardless. This is more confusing than the trolley problem. This is—we're we're getting into, like, good place-style variations now. 
God, we are. That was a phenomenal episode of that show. But anyway, throughout this whole thing, Haven is positioning herself as like a third alternative to Xavier and Magneto's philosophy, saying that unlike them, she looks at it in a much more holistic, gray way. And she would sell herself as that because I think she actually looks at the world in a really thoughtful, compelling, compassionate way. But then there's this whole thing of murdering millions and millions of people. Yeah, she's entirely right until you get to the mass murder part. Right, because she assumes that the Mahapralaya is a real thing. The other characters, and we have no evidence of that being the case. She is confident. She says she's got a voice inside her that has made her absolutely positive. She knows this is true. And if she's right, like, I think she might have a good point. I'm not saying it's something I would agree with, but, like, you could at least see where she was coming from. But everyone just has to take it on faith that the Mahapralaya is a real thing. Well, that it's a real thing, and it's a thing that can be set off by human volition. That's the theological question that she's going to end up coming up against, and that's going to end up actually basically taking down her operation shortly. Although for right now, Haven's looking pretty good, because Wolfsbane, who's just falling apart at this point, attacks Haven. Haven, you know, has dared to disagree with anything Havoc said, and at this point that's all it takes for Wolfsbane, and Haven just picks Wolfsbane up, prolias her, teleports her away, and when she comes back... It's rain in her human form, spiky red hair and all. But unlike the last time we saw her, when she went into that form to be treated for her genetic bonding with Havoc, now she is full of life, bright-eyed, overjoyed, with tears streaming from her eyes. It's a beautiful, like, ecstatic image, and in such sharp contrast to the last time we saw her this way. Although it does definitely highlight how skimpy her outfit is. It doesn't seem as skimpy when she's a wolf lady. Yeah, this is the one thing that I'm not fond of about Dursa Mazard, is that she very, very sexies up Rain. Yeah, and Rain's, like, still pretty young. I mean, she can't be more than, what, like, 15 or so at this point? And also, I'm very uncomfortable with Rain being objectified in human form in this specific narrative context. Yeah, fair enough. But still, hey, yay for Wolfsbane, and yay for the thing Haven just did— and yay for getting to a milestone issue of X-Factor, because next is number 100, titled appropriately enough, Mahapralaya. This is written by J.M. DeMattis, penciled by Jen Ursuma, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver. It's a double-size issue with a red foil cover, um, unless you got it at the newsstand. Yeah, that was cheaper and didn't have foil. I had the red foil version, and it was really cool. It's like this deep metallic red. It's pretty badass. So Rain is human, and she's herself in human form again. What exactly did Haven do? Well, basically, she used her still relatively undefined powers to, during Rain's pralaya, sever the genetic compulsion to agree with Alex, be with Alex, protect Alex, love Alex. Now, Rain's emotions toward Alex and in general are her own for the first time since the Extinction Agenda, which was ages ago. This is such a big deal for Rain. Now all she has to deal with are teenager feelings and wolf feelings. I mean, still an improvement. Oh, absolutely. So Rain, immensely grateful, says, Hey, I'm gonna stay with this woman who helped me so much. So what's Havoc's response? Must be possessed. God damn it, Havoc. Every time a woman disagrees with you, it doesn't mean they're possessed? Do you think Havoc knows what menstruation is? That, that was a train of thought. Like, I, I don't think it's related to possession, but I'm th- it, it reminds me of, like, the asshole dude move of, of, any, of, of deciding that women who disagree or argue must clearly be on their periods. I mean, I think with anything scientific, Alex is pretty on the level. I think he probably doesn't understand the misogynistic bent of what he's saying, despite the fact that it's very there. Okay, but given that his primary experience with women that we know of, has been with Lorna. And given that she does get possessed really, really, really frequently, like, do you think that that in general he just mistakes a lot of other things for possession? I think that's exactly what's going on, and I think it super sucks, because, like, that's the worst attitude he could have toward Polaris. That invalidates everything about her that's been a response and a rebellion to that long series of possession. Oh no, it's totally crap. It's just kind of funny that, like... His frame of reference is that, yes, you know, abrupt change of hearts, clearly, like, possession is the more feasible option than someone having just changed their mind. 
Oh man, do you think he does it for little things as well? Like, you know, uh, he and Lorna are out for dinner and she's like, oh, I think I'll have the fish. Actually, no, I think I'm feeling the chicken. And then all of a sudden he just brings a priest out to exercise her. Okay, so, you know, you know Max Wittert's uh, Gene and Scott comics? I don't know if I do. Oh man, okay, well I'm going to link to them in the Visual Companion, they're great. But, um then it may or may not mean anything to you that I, I think that an Alex and Lorna version of those would be even funnier. I, I would love to see an Alex and Lorna comic or a sitcom. We've said that many times. X-Factor would be a great sitcom. But anyway, so Haven de-escalates this whole situation, telling Rain, hey, Alex is just concerned. He's not being a jerk. Like, Haven is a legitimately kind and thoughtful person. You know, aside from the murder. Well, and that's the thing. Aside from the murder, I think that's what makes her such a compelling villain in a lot of ways. She does horrible shit, but aside from the horrible shit she's doing, she's, like, great in every other way. It's just murder. Yeah, I, I feel like great in every other way is is significantly, significantly compromised by the other way being murder. Like, that's that's a compel. This is like, oh, he's such a nice guy, except for all of the awful shit. Right, exactly. Uh, oh, did we mention that the Kennedy Center bombing from the last arc was uh, by Haven's organization? Yeah, it totally was. She's been at this for a while. She's already started her plan. So while while Haven is talking about her her dream and her vision for the world, Havoc and Monsoon get in a totally pointless fight because this is the you know the arc of of Havoc just sort of doing stuff for no reason. But, but, this fight results in one of the greatest things this issue offers us, which is Monsoon's adorable sulking face. Oh, it's great. His eyes are all shadowy, and he's got this, like, frown that his lips are just stretched into. He looks like a toddler. I want to see a version of this with him with, like, big sparkly anime eyes. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like, Monsoon is Haven's brother and sort of her second-in-command. Like, he runs her troops. And so she's all sparkly. Like, he's got to have some sparkle going on, too. He's not really wearing much, so it's got to come from somewhere. Well, and he's so adorably pouty. He is. Anyway, Haven breaks up the fight because she really wants X-Factor to understand. She looks at the way their team works and sees them as a bridge between mutants and humans, which, okay, I mean, that makes sense. And that's critical to her cause. The voice inside her, the mysterious voice inside her, has specifically said so. And on that bridge, there's a group of people. And if you pull the lever, the trolley will go the other way, but... <laughs> right. So... Like we said, Haven's basically giving the same speech as before, but this time the art is very different. This time we see the camera, such as it is in a comic, pull back from her speaking all the way out into space. And we see Earth, this beautiful green and blue globe, and it really gets across that humanity as a whole, you know, they're the ones we should be concerned with, not individuals. It's all about the holistic planet. And then it zooms out more and there's a big freaking satellite that's about to shoot a laser that's going to make California explode. Yeah, again, she's great until she's not. Also, I like that her nefarious plan is just straight up Lex Luthor from the first Superman movie. Right? Like, I was thinking Bond villain, but uh, yeah, I think it's more of a, a Lex Luthor real estate destructo thing. No, that is literally, he doesn't use a, a satellite, but like, that is literally his plan. He's going to crack open the San Andreas Fault and therefore have a ton of beachfront property, but also sink a big chunk of, of, the, um, of California and also some of the eastern seaboard um, for other reasons. But yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's literally just, she, she just literally stole Lex Luthor's plan. Well, unfortunately, this time, we don't have a Superman to fly around the Earth backward and thus travel back in time, which is still a wonderful plot point that I will forever defend. So, X-Factor's worried. Polaris is worried. She's like, look, lady, I gave you so much of a chance. I heard you out. You saved me, and I'm grateful. But you're going to blow up California. I I'm not okay with that. We know that orbital, no, no, good guys don't have orbital lasers. I mean, the Justice League did, although that may just back up what you just said. Yeah, and that was very specifically the first step to being the Justice Lords, and they were immediately misused. So, everybody fights, but Haven once again uses Sequester, uh, I'm sorry, Prolia's, all of them. She teleports them all away, and there's this great page of the characters all visually distorted and squished and stretched. It looks like some horrible Ren and Stimpy page, but what it mainly reminded me of was when the main characters of the New Mutant Summer Special got transported to Megalopolis. It's very Brett Blevins. 
Yeah. Oh, you're right. It's got that kind of exaggerated anatomy and that very, very animator sensibility. Now, the characters are, are mostly split up and we get brief pop psychoanalyses of each character in Haven's voice, but in mixed case captions that kind of imply that she's she's sent notes with them. Uh, maybe, you know, I mean, therapists take a lot of notes and she's kind of like one of those. And these, oh. these scenes don't really tell us much new. It's just what we know about these characters. But one of the characters is new, that being random. And her take on random is that under his super tough shell, he's very fragile and sensitive and can barely hold himself together. And indeed, he melts into goo in this vision. And when the characters come to, random is still a pile of gray goo who quickly embarrassedly reassembles himself. Yeah, man, there is there is nothing more awkward than than having to reassemble yourself from a pile of gray goo in front of the kids who you really want to think you're cool for reasons that are kind of beyond me because they're X Factor, but you know. Are you telling me that X Factor isn't cool, Jay Edidin? I'm going to let you follow your heart on that one, Miles. Well, X-Factor doesn't have too much time to think about what they've just been through because pretty soon, Monsoon and Val Cooper show up. They were double agents the whole time. They've been working against Haven, and now is their time to free X-Factor so they can stop this satellite from blowing up California. Well, and Monsoon very specifically believes in the same cosmology that Haven does, but he doesn't think that it's the place of humanity, that's the place of, of anyone but the gods, to actually trigger those events. And in fact, as our heroes are quickly found by Haven's guards and it turns into a big punch-up, Monsoon explains a little more thoroughly where he's coming from. Who among us can say how the Mahapralaya will come? Perhaps the great destruction arrives one heart at a time. Perhaps the new humanity is born each time one of us struggles through the darkness in his own soul and chooses love over hate. Mercy over contempt. So he's not a scriptural literalist. I'm a fan. I kind of wonder how much what Monsoon is saying here is just jammed in Mattis's own set of beliefs. I mean, I don't know the guy, but it seems like it might be. You know, I am reluctant to read too much into that because something that tends to happen, and, and I think is a, the product of individual cultural biases when we read comics, is that we read stories involving faiths that we're not part of or that we've been taught to other and exotify, if they have any kind of connection or any kind of, or if the person who wrote them has any kind of connection to that as clearly reflecting their beliefs rather than them just using a cultural framework as material for a story in the same ways that everyone else does. No, that's that's a really, really good point. Um, I guess unless we talk to Dematis, which, hey, maybe we will sometime can't really know. Well, and have no more reason to believe that here than we do with anyone else anywhere else. Fair enough, yeah. Well, Jamie Madrox is doing his best to join the fight, but as he creates dupes, they are literally faceless. They don't move around at all on their own. He is falling the fuck apart. And as the other two Madroxes, the dupes, one of whom is very pro-Haven and one of whom is very anti-Haven, physically enacts Jamie's own conflict about the situation, Jamie Prime drags himself away to find Haven, thinking maybe she can save him. I mean, she saved Rain, sort of. Maybe she can save him. X-Factor, meanwhile, does manage to fight their way to the top of Haven's fortress, and there, by their powers combined, they summon Captain Planet. Well, they blow up the satellite, but that's pretty good for the environment, too, I guess. Uh, anyway, California lives to have progressive politics and beautiful weather. Another day. Hooray! And then Haven comes out carrying the dying Jamie Prime. And she admits she has lost this particular fight. This battle is over. For all my efforts, you still do not trust. You still do not believe. But I believe in you. Having X-Factor beside me is far more important than this one aborted plan. And she claims that she's going to prove it by curing Madrox like she cured Rain, but X-Factor has to ask her to. They have to basically invite her onto their side. Choose, Havoc. Now, or I leave him to destiny. I leave him to death. Havoc says yes, and Haven pralias Jamie, and he stands up for a moment 
and then immediately falls over dead. And Haven just panics. She she quickly rationalizes, oh, oh, the legacy viruses, mutant kinds own Maharpalaya. And she teleports away. Jamie's gone. And God, after the buildup of Rain being cured of her own problem in so many ways, after that moment where Jamie stands and he's okay, it's kind of a punch to the gut. I mean, if you've seen the cover, you kind of figure it's coming. It's Havoc looking all sad, holding a presumably dead Jamie Madrox. But still, this is a super effective scene, or at least it was for me, not least of all because of the way the characters react. Yeah, it's rough. Um, and this is this is the first time that Madrox died of a big mutant targeting plague, but it won't be the last. It's true. But this scene, God, it's raining, and Wolfsbane's just crying on Lorna, actually looking a little bit similar to her crying when Doug Ramsey died so many years ago. Alex looks sadly away, but I think Guido's the one that gets me the most. The Jamester's okay, isn't he, Lorna? Haven was just messing with our minds again, right? Man. And... As we mentioned, Madrox is going to be back. There's an easy way to bring him back, even though it seemed like this was Jamie Prime. But something I'd forgotten is that he's actually not going to be a major, major player until Peter David's second X-Factor run so many years after this. Even after he comes back, he's not going to be the center of any books anymore. He's not going to be a regular member of any teams. This is basically it for Jamie Madrox for many years to come in any real way. If I recall correctly, the next form we're going to see him in is as the Madrian Age of Apocalypse. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do believe, and boy, they're creepy. So, yeah, that's the Haven story in X-Factor. We're going to see Haven again, we're going to learn more about the voice inside her, what its deal is, why she's doing what she's doing, and it's going to get real uncomfortable, and I think that's part of why I have so much sympathy for Haven, because she is largely a victim of, like, the story that was written around her. But for this story, I gotta say, I really like it. And I like it a lot more reading it as a grown-up than I did as a kid. I think a lot of it went pretty over my head when I was a kid. So, speaking of death and resurrection, you've got questions. And an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Throughout different comics, continuities, and media, the Phoenix Force itself is sometimes portrayed as a neutral force that only acts on the emotions of its host, as a force of good, as a force of nature that fulfills a higher purpose, as an evil fiery genocide bird, as a redhead mutant fetishist, as an alternate personality of Gene that isn't a cosmic entity at all, and a bunch of other stuff. What is your preferred portrayal of the Phoenix? That was a really thorough and exhaustive list. I'm impressed, Anonymous listener. So I actually really like the way the Phoenix was portrayed back in Excalibur number 50, which was not contradictory to what had come before. It was just an exploration of that. I like the idea of the Phoenix as this fundamental, ancient, and kind of personalityless cosmic force that's nonetheless desperate to understand life in a more sort of human and sentient way by bonding with the especially intense people that it finds. Jean Grey, Rachel Summers, whatever. Yeah, um... I honestly, my answer is pretty much exactly the same. I like the Phoenix Force as something that has sort of volition, but in a very, very abstract and conceptual way. Um, it that and and doesn't exactly have or is beyond or is beyond human understanding to the point that any comprehensible form or personality we have for it is a vast oversimplification of what it actually is. Right, and that way, the Force itself isn't evil. Like, yes, it can cause destruction, but it doesn't really fully understand what it's doing, except in as much as it can through the human host it's bonded to. That way you get to see the human host's own personality traits turned up to 11, as their power and their consciousness are, like, hugely expanded, and you get the conflict of that human host interacting with the world in ways they're maybe not prepared for because of what the Phoenix gives them. It makes for really good drama. It lets you get sort of a Venom-esque symbiote relationship, but one that's between two vastly unequal entities, one that we can understand and one that we kind of can't. It puts us into the shoes of the Phoenix's host, in a way, as readers. Yeah, it's... I I really like the phoenix and and humanity as as fundamentally not exactly incompatible but mutually somewhat incomprehensible because that explains the phoenix's interest in in human hosts 
and in knowing human hosts and its relative vulnerability in that context, too. As far as the idea of having it be an ancient force of fiery destruction, some kind of uh, god of pure passion and death or life or whatever, I'm not saying that hasn't been done well. I actually really liked the uh, Asgard-Shiar war in recent Thor. But honestly, the Marvel Universe has tons of villains like that already, and it doesn't have very many like the Phoenix Force as described in Excalibur number 50. I like the implication that it's not that the Phoenix Force is that, it's that that's one of the explanations and personifications that's been projected onto it based on to, based on its fundamental characteristics. Yeah. As, as filtered through Shi'ar cosmology, for instance. Yeah, the way the Shi'ar look at the Phoenix is fascinating. Like, they don't understand it, and it does a, it's done a lot of bad stuff that they've seen, and they are just terrified of it. Spud's fan asks on Tumblr, what X-Men would you like to see hosting an in-universe Explain the X-Men podcast? You know, I talk a lot of shit about Sage, but I feel like this question is where her moment finally comes. The concern I would have, though, is not whether she would be qualified to do it, because obviously she would, but whether she'd be interesting and fun to listen to. Oh, she isn't solo hosting it. Obviously she's got a co-host, and for that co-host, for, for sort of a good foil, I nominate Jubilee. Oh, okay, so the one that's sort of more fun, more emotional, less fact-based. Hey, wait a minute. Am I the Jubilee of this podcast? Did you just call me boring? I just called you Sage, so I guess, in a way. No, Jay, you're not boring. You're not Sage. I would never say that about you. You're just saying that because I'm the one who knows the Zencaster password. <laughs> no, Jay, you're great, and I hope I'm, um, I mean, I love Jubilee, but I hope I'm more than her in this this podcasting dynamic. Okay, Jubilee is awesome, dude. Are you talking smack about Jubilee? Because she is very responsible and an amazingly good parent and super kick-ass excellent and remarkably non-jaded given all of the shit she's been through. Not a vampire anymore, though. I really liked her as a vampire. But I feel like we're getting off track. Uh, I think that Brew and Genesis would actually make a pretty great podcasting pair. There's a lot of ex-enthusiasm between the two of them, a lot of intellect, and there's a bit of heart and tragedy in the background. They would never, ever, ever, ever stay on topic. I feel like they would have a podcast, but it would not be about X-Men history, and it would be reconceptualized basically like every two episodes. Uh, that may be true. But whoever runs an X-Men podcast, I don't think they could keep Henry McCoy away. I feel like Beast would be guesting on like every other episode, and the hosts wouldn't even be able to say no because he's fascinating, and he's funny, and he knows fucking everything. Again, he's a character who I see podcasting about things other than the X-Men. I feel like... Again, the, the Brew and Genesis podcast that just changes topics and concepts regularly and just has Henry McCoy on as a, a recurring expert in whatever the hell they're talking about that week would totally work. Um, I think Iceman would start one briefly and it would last about three episodes before he just kind of lost interest. Yeah, because he himself is such a big X-Men fanboy and, you know, justifiably so. But uh, focused is one thing Bobby Drake is not. Whoever started an X-Men podcast, though, which apparently we have not adequately answered that question, but whoever started um, Sage and Jubilee. Okay, well, Sage and Jubilee, Bishop would be a religious listener. He would listen to episodes as soon as they came out and would never admit it. Oh, between the two of them, Sage and Jubilee would definitely be able to coerce him into guesting on it fairly regularly. That's true. That's true. They are very good at being convincing in their own ways. He'd be grumpy about it, though. He's always grumpy. That's half the fun. Now, we are not grumpy because we have awesome listeners, and the support of those listeners helps us stay on the air and ad-free, and also gives certain levels of support acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's take it to the angry Claremontian narrator. You stand at a crossroads, Rob Wilson. Down one path lies Charlie Phillips, hand outstretched other hand holding a book that you know contains all the answers you have sought and many you did not. Down the other path is also Charlie Phillips. The same book, the same hand, the same silhouette, but somehow subtly different. Maybe taller, maybe with slightly crisper lapels. Choose carefully, Rob Wilson. Down one path lies certain doom and down the other. Highly probable doom. As usual. <laughs> and the mic from here, on the subject of, of relatively certain doom, goes to Apocalypse. 
Haven spoke of enacting global disasters that would call the weak from the planet, leaving only those worthy of embodying the next stage of evolution. So very like the grand purpose of Apocalypse! And yet, her ambitions and designs fell short of true greatness. Had Haven true vision, she would have surrounded herself with elevated and themed assistants, rather than merely that foolish brother of hers. Maggie the Hook would be far more effective as her acolyte of the Rising Inferno, rather than merely an anonymous behelmeted soldier. And speaking of those helmets, Haven's troops' uniforms lacks the handcrafted touch that separates henchmen from mere fodder. Melissa not have looked sharp in a handmade suit of snake-themed armor interlaced with flowing scarves. Four ideas are worthy, Haven, but you ignore critical aspects of managerial theory. And that is why you shall never be the equal of Apocalypse! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Scott and Jean get engaged. And Scott's failure to have fun reaches a whole new level. Music